The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The word of the Lord. Be to God. One hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our Advent series in Isaiah, and we're structuring our series around the antiphons, these ancient titles of Christ that come from the prophetic writings, um, ancient titles that we probably know well from the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And today we come to the title, The Root and Rod of Jesse. Titles for Christ that we find here in Isaiah 11. So before we come to this passage, let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel promise that it gives us. We thank you, Lord, for the one who is the root and the rod of Jesse. May we see him more clearly, know him more deeply, and love him more fully, Father, as we dig into this text together. It's in Christ's name that we pray, and the power and efficacy of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this prophecy from Isaiah, it, it presents us with important and powerful imagery. We read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. God, through Isaiah, he appeals to the imagery of a tree. But why would he do this? Well, a key passage of biblical ethics it compares human flourishing. It compares the good life to a tree in full fruition. This text is Psalm 1. And when we confront tree, image, uh, tree imagery in Scripture, our minds should often go here. Psalm 1 tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. 
As we talked about over the summer, as we worked through the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, what here is translated as, as blessed might actually be best rendered as flourishing. Who is the one who flourishes? Who is the one who becomes what God intends the human to be? It's the one who loves and desires and delights in the law of God. And what is this one like? It's like a tree whose roots are deep and who drinks water in full, whose leaves and fruits are in full fruition. The law of God, Psalm 1 tells us, will lead us to flourishing. The law of God will guide us into life. It will take us from acorns to oak trees. But if this is true, how is it that we're supposed to understand that the house of Jesse has become a stump? The house of Jesse here speaks of the royal line of Davidic kings that Isaiah's time, in Isaiah's time, are ruling over Judah. Remember that Isaiah ministered in Judah after it had been separated from the northern kingdom of Israel, and Isaiah ministered through the reigns of several kings. He also prophesies Judah's eventual fall to Babylon, which will happen after his death in 586 B.C. Isaiah ministers to a line of weakened kings. And very soon, there will be no king to sit on the throne of David. Instead, he will be a servant at the table of Babylon. But if this is what has happened to the root of Jesse, if it's become a stump, what has happened? Well, Psalm 1 tells us, the house of Jesse and the kings of Judah, they've neither meditated upon nor delighted in the law of God. As Psalm 1 tells us, this brings death. It reduces life. Psalm 1 declares, Flourishing is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Commentators point out that what we find here is a kind of dying of agency, a kind of atrophying of action, a decreasing of vitality in the sinful life. First, this person walks in the counsel of, wicked, of the wicked, then stands in the way of sinners, and then finally sits in the seat of scoffers. The person is slowly dying. The person is becoming less active and less vibrant. The person walks and then sits, Sorry, walks, then stands, then sits. And the implication is that eventually this person dies. They become a stump, just like the house of Jesse. The Davidic kings then have forsaken the law of God for the counsel of the wicked. They've turned from life to death. The tree longs to expand its branches, to spread its leaf, to soak up the sun. It longs to stretch its roots deep in the soil to drink up the water. But just like a withering tree, sin does not stretch, it does not grow, it does not expand the person. Sin curves the self upon the self. Sin is like the withering leaf that curls up into a ball. 
This is the withering, sinful corruption of the human. Martin Luther, for instance, he describes our sinful state as the person curved in on himself. We shrink like a balled-up leaf. We're like trees with no roots, nor sun, nor rain. We walk and then stand and then sit, and eventually we die. We become a stump just like the house of Jesse. So then, how is it that the human unfurls? How do we become bigger? How do we flourish? Well, this prophecy assures us that there will be new life. God, through Isaiah, tells us, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There will be a branch. There will be a root that will grow from this seemingly dead tree trunk. This tree trunk that is the house of Jesse. And this promised king will grow and he will bear fruit in the very way that Psalm 1 tells us the human is to flourish. Isaiah tells us of this promised king, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And the way that Isaiah puts this is very important. In saying it just like this, he is drawing together both the law of the Lord and the biblical concept of wisdom. Again, as Psalm 1 describes the flourishing person, his delight is in the law of the Lord. But as the book of Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so when Isaiah says of this promised king, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, Isaiah is combining these two sentiments. Isaiah is telling us his delight shall be in the law of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in wisdom which rests upon the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the law and in the wisdom of the Lord. And so here, law and wisdom are pictured as paired, even synonymous objects of the king's delight. And this makes perfect sense. The law of the Lord is about righteousness. And as theologian Sinclair Ferguson tells us, righteousness involves right relationships. Right relationships between ourselves and God, between ourselves and others, and in the world at large. This is why the righteousness of the law is summarized in the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a matter of right relationships to both God and neighbor. Similarly, wisdom is about being properly human in the world. It's about being human as God intended. It's about living rightly before God with neighbor in creation. Wisdom, like righteousness, is all about proper human relations. And because these right relations are the love and the delight of this promised king, he will flourish. He will bear fruit. He will stretch out his roots to water, and he will stretch out his branches to sun. He will bring life, not death. And so we should not be surprised that Isaiah, here in this passage, he lays out right relations to God, to neighbor, and to all of creation, relations that we find in their perfect form and perfect fulfillment in this promised king. Remember, however, 
In our sinful state, we are curved in upon ourselves. Rather than rightly relating ourselves to all things, we wrongly relate all things to ourselves. Again, this turns us into withered leaves, dead tree trunks. It shrinks us. Sin fixates the human upon itself. But this king is like the flourishing tree. He reaches out to creation. He reaches his branches out to the neighbor. And most importantly, he reaches out his branches to God. He is anything but curved in upon himself. And this means then that we also must be drawn out of ourselves. And this is difficult, especially in our modern culture. For instance, in her fascinating book, Strange Rights, scholar and journalist Tara Isabella Burton, she categorizes a number of modern spiritualities, one of which is the self-care movement. According to this approach to life, Burton writes, people who don't serve your needs or optimize your experience are more often than not labeled as toxic. Burton then quotes from one article in which the author promotes a form of, of self-care she learned from a friend. The article says, Every now and then, my friend creates a list with two columns, people who invigorate me on the left and people who deplete me on the right. She categorizes friends, co-workers, acquaintances, and those she's newly met into one of the two sides and cuts ties with anyone on the right. That might sound a bit harsh to some of you, but think about it. Why waste your energy and time on people who don't add any value to your life? And there's certainly a place for healthy and sustainable practices that keep us from burnout and the like. But here, the self has become the thing which everything, even other people, are ultimately directed to. The self is curved in upon the self, just like a balled-up, withering leaf. Self-care here has become self-worship. And this will make for a very small, meager, petty, lonely, sad, and selfish self. The irony is that when we make everything about the self, then the self actually becomes smaller. It's a shrinking process that can indeed last for all eternity. This is one aspect of hell. Such self-care is ultimately self-contraction, self-killing, self-carnage. How then can we respond? Well, we need to rightly relate ourselves to the world. And for one thing, we must be rightly related to creation. And in verses 6 through 10 of this prophecy, we are shown a beautiful picture of creation in perfect harmony. The wolf and the lion dwell together. The leopard lies down with the goat, the cow, and the bear graze with one another. The lion and the ox share a mouthful of straw. And humanity, too, finds itself in this harmonious picture. We see the child leading along a lion and a fattened calf. And we see a toddler playing with no fear of the cobra or the adder. We find here a compelling image of humanity in perfect accord with the created world. 
This does raise a question, though. Does this mean that when Christ returns, there will be no animal death? Different Christians can legitimately reach different conclusions here. Genesis 1, as in uh, this passage, uh, has all animals pictured as, as herbivores, not eating each other, but the vegetation of the ground. Yet in Psalm 104, the Lord is praised for feeding the roaring lions their prey. And in John 21, the resurrected Jesus, the, the clearest picture we have of the resurrected life that God intends for humanity, we see the resurrected Jesus eating a fish for, for breakfast, certainly something uh, that includes animal death. The question also arises whether the perversion and privation and futility of sin's corruption would take on a constructive rather than a destructive role if it worked to form the complex biological mechanisms at work in predatory animals. Yes, scripture is clear that death, human death, human death is an affront and aberration and tragedy within God's good world and it has no place when Christ returns. But the issue of animal death is open to interpretation among faithful Christians. So then, does this leave us at an impasse in interpreting this passage? No, because what we are given here is a picture of harmonious creation, however figurative this picture might be. And again, this is important because creation calls us outside of ourselves. Take, for instance, an example provided by the philosopher and the novelist Iris Murdoch. She writes, I am looking out the window in an anxious and resentful state of mind, oblivious of my surroundings, brooding perhaps on some damage done to my prestige. Then suddenly I observe a hovering kestrel. In a moment, everything is altered. The brooding self with its hurt vanity has disappeared. There is nothing now but kestrel. And when I return to thinking of the other matter, it seems less important. Creation, in this case a beautiful bird, a small member of the falcon family, has, has pulled Murdoch out of her fixation upon herself. She's been struck quite suddenly by the wonder of creation. And that's enough for the moment to decenter the self. The balled up, withering leaf that she is, that all of us are, has unfurled ever so slightly. And it's with the same dynamic in mind that Murdoch praises the importance of the sciences, of vocational craftsmanship, of the intellectual disciplines. In each of these, the human self must conform itself to the actual shape of the world. To be a good scientist, to be a good craftsman, a scholar, or to be a good worker of any kind, Murdoch tells us that we need justice, accuracy, truthfulness, realism, humility, and courage. We must conform our efforts and purposes and aims to the way the world actually is, and not the way, the way, sorry, not the way we wish the world would be to suit and to fit our own purposes. She gives a, an example of learning a new language. She writes, if I am learning Russian, I'm confronted by an authoritative structure which commends and commands my respect. The task is difficult. My work is a progressive revelation of something which exists independently of me. 
Love of Russian leads me away from myself towards something alien to me, something which my consciousness cannot take over, swallow up, deny, or make unreal. Learning, then, is not ultimately about me. It's about learning to love something that is not me. If I am going to learn Russian, then I have to learn what Russian actually is with all of its vocabulary and grammar and pronunciation, not what I wish Russian would be. And for us, it could be a bird, its coloring and its flight pattern. It could be a well-designed set of plumbing pipes that obeys the law of gravity and hydraulics. It could be a carefully tended garden. It could be a wisely worked out resolution to a personal or professional conflict. It could be a delicious meal made with an astute eye to a combination of countless ingredients. It could be an experiment that cleverly isolates one particular variable of the natural world. In all such cases, the self is pulled out of itself into the order and into the wonder of creation. And as Murdoch tells us, this forms us to rightly experience and to express the world. She writes, this is the preparation for the honesty and humility of the scholar who does not even feel tempted to suppress the fact which damns his theory. To refuse to lie about the world even though you wish it were something different? Well, that's the path of virtue, the path of properly conforming ourselves to reality, the path to learning to love and delight in creation. The scholar whose theory will fail with the admission of new results, but who speaks, of, speaks the truth anyways? Well, that's a paradigm that's a paradigm for all of us. We all at one time or another struggle with hiding or suppressing or lying about things, about the truth, in order to inflate ourselves over the truth. But again, there's a deep irony here because in seeking to make ourselves big, we actually make ourselves small. And so Murdoch contends studying is normally an exercise of virtue. And this is true of any kind of learning or, or studying that goes along with any good vocation. Virtue itself is a bigness. Aristotle describes the virtuous person as magnanimous, which literally means a bigness or a greatness of soul. When we stretch ourselves to things beyond ourselves, we are made bigger. But we can only do this by conforming ourselves to the greater reality that we actually find ourselves in. And this is the picture of the harmonious reality that Isaiah gives us. And this picture should stir our hearts. But if we can't appreciate the beauty of a kestrel now, then we can't properly long for the dwelling together of the wolf and the lamb. If we can't now appreciate the creational order and structure that organizes the work that we daily do, then we can't properly long for the fully restored order of creation. If we don't truly love creation in its order now, we can't long for the restoration of which Isaiah speaks. But Isaiah does not stop here. In addition to a proper relation to creation, Isaiah also presents us with a proper relation to neighbor. 
And this, too, is a matter of being drawn out. Isaiah tells us of this great Davidic king, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This Davidic king, this root of Jesse, he will establish perfect justice and peace and relations among people. It's with righteousness, the realization of rightly ordered relations, this righteousness that he will judge between humans. And this is important because just as we seek to conform and subjugate creation to the self, so also do we seek to conform and subjugate other persons to ourself. C.S. Lewis puts this very well, and he, he ties a number of these threads together. Reflecting on the death of his good friend Charles Williams and its effect on his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien, also known as Ronald, Lewis writes the following. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. There's something inside of Tolkien that only Williams' sense of humor could bring out. And with Williams' passing, that part of, of, of Tolkien, it will lay dormant for the rest of his present life. And as Lewis laments, I have less of Ronald now. Without Williams, Tolkien cannot be his full self. He needs others to be more fully who he is. And even though Lewis can now have Tolkien by himself, to himself, so to speak, again, he actually has less of him. And we, all of us, without a community of deep relationships, we cannot be called out. Without community, we cannot be our full selves. We need one another in order to become what God intends us to be. And this is one reason why God calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. Without our love, our neighbors cannot be themselves. They shrink like Tolkien without Williams. I can't be fully me without you and vice versa. And every person in this congregation is uniquely gifted to call out certain parts of other members of this congregation. This is both the privilege and the responsibility of the church community that the church places upon you. We need others to be our full self. And again, the irony here is that the spirituality of self-care actually suffocates and shrinks the self in its self-focused isolation. And so I commend all of you, foster deep, deep friendships with people here in this Church, we all need each other for this purpose. But there's also something else that we need. Yes, creation calls us out of that curvature upon ourselves. The neighbor also does this and does this even more so. But most importantly and basically of all, God does this. And notice that this is primary in Isaiah's prophecy. 
Before Isaiah speaks of our relations to creation, before he speaks of our relation to neighbor, he speaks of our relation to God. Specifically, he describes this promised king's relationship to God. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The king, as prescribed by Psalm 1 in Proverbs, delights in the Lord. This king is the embodiment of law and wisdom. This king is the perfect picture of righteousness, of right relations with God and neighbor and creation. And all of it, all of it starts with his delight in the Lord. More than anything else, he longs for the Lord. And before he is with neighbor and before he is with all of the rest of creation, he is with God. Or better put, God is with him. The Lord is with him in wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge. And it's because he delights in the Lord, because he loves God above all else, because he loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because of this, he loves all other things rightly. And here we come to a key human truth. It's only by loving God most of all that we come to love all other things rightly. Augustine is, is helpful here, and he, he gives us an image comparing all of creation to an engagement ring from God. But Augustine gives us an illustration. He says, Suppose a man should make a ring for his betrothed, and she should love the ring more wholeheartedly than the betrothed who made it for her. Certainly, let her love his gift. But, Augustine asks, what if she should say, the ring is enough, I don't want to see his face again. Creation, Augustine tells us, is like an engagement ring that God gives us to pledge him to pledge himself to us. Every joy that we take in creation, just like every joy that the beloved takes in the ring, cannot be separated from the giver. And all of these joys find their very source and their very purpose in that giver. And the great beauty of the ring, we must not forget the greater beauty of the bridegroom. And the great beauty of creation, we must not forget the greater beauty of the creator. If you can't see a kestrel and see the goodness and wisdom of God, then you can't really see a kestrel. If you can't see your neighbor and see someone made in the very image of God, well, then you can't really see your neighbor. You're simply looking at the ring and forgetting the bridegroom. You're like someone who receives a love letter and while admiring the beauty of the font of the writing, you don't actually bother to read the letter itself. So then, what are we to do? Well, we're supposed to look to this promised Davidic king, this king who is the living root of Jesse. He is Jesus. 
He's born from the stump of Jesse, born from the long-deposed house of Jesse. And he is the human in full delight of the Lord. And from this delight, he rightly loves neighbor. He rightly loves creation. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly wise, perfectly related to everything. But he's more than this. Again, as Isaiah tells us, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He doesn't judge by what he sees and hears. He does not ultimately judge by way of any human senses. No, he sees directly into our hearts. He knows exactly who we are and all that we have done. But how is it that any mere human can do this? Well, of course, no mere human can do this. Only God can. And so who is this promised king? Well, he's both the son of David and God. He's both David the son and God the son. But how does that help our situation? Well, because Christ restores the broken order of our relationships. Again, one of, one of the culminating images that Isaiah gives us as he presents to us this righteousness, this full cosmic righteousness, is the child in no danger of the serpent. But why is this important? Well, because when we first sinned, when we first turned away from God, when we first traded the flourishing tree for the deadness of the stump, God told the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, he told him the following. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be enmity between the child, the offspring of Adam and Eve, and the serpent. Yet in this imagery, we find no such enmity between this child and the serpent. But in the sermon so far, we, we've not spoken of the child and the serpent at peace, but the child in no danger of the serpent. Notice the child is not playing with the serpent. The child's not leading the serpent as he does the lion and the fatted calf. No, the child is pictured as playing where the serpent might be expected to be. We're told that he plays over the hole of the cobra, that he puts his hand in the den of the adder. Unlike the other animals, we don't actually see the serpent. And I believe what we have here is actually the serpent's absence. The serpent's not there. The cobra hole is empty. The, uh, sorry, the den of the adder is vacant. Figuratively speaking, the serpent is no more. The serpent has been defeated, vanquished, conquered. Figuratively speaking, there are no serpents here, only remnants of where they used to fester. How has this happened? Well, Christ has undone the work of the serpent. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. Against God's instruction, they tasted the fruit of what they thought was life from the tree. But Christ, he obeyed God, and he tasted the fruit of what he knew was death from the tree, the tree of the cross. In so doing, the mighty tree of Psalm 1 allowed itself to be chopped down. 
the tree of life itself, Christ Jesus himself. He became a stump for us. Righteousness, these right relationships, it demands that justice be done. It demands that violations of righteousness be properly punished. Otherwise, justice vanishes. Otherwise, there is no righteousness. And Christ is our true king, the one who stands in for all of those he rules. He took the punishment of the tree of the cross. The punishment that we deserve for our disobedience considering the tree, concerning the tree in Eden. For all the ways that we have subjugated God and neighbor and creation to the self. And this invites us into restored relationships. It reconciles us to God if only we will receive Christ by faith. This undoes the work of the serpent. And where do we find the holes of the cobra in the adder now? Well, I believe that we find them in the scarred hands of the resurrected Christ, which Christ invites Thomas to touch just like the child in Isaiah. The holes that the serpent burrowed into his hands remain, but the serpent is defeated, and one day the serpent will be no more. Christ offers the restoration of all broken relationships by being broken himself. He reconciles us to God so that we can rightly love God, and from there he reconciles us to God, or sorry, to neighbor and to all of creation. This is the comprehensive image that Isaiah gives us. And even more, Christ is raised again from the dead. As Isaiah tells us, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Christ is our signal. He is the very reality of restored relationships. When we look at Christ, we see true God and true humanity in perfect relation with one another. Do you want to see your true neighbor, the one who truly loves you as he loves himself, the very human life that just is flourishing? Look to Christ. Learn to love your neighbor by loving the humanity of Christ. Do you want to see your true God, the one who creates and saves you, the one who has offered the ultimate sacrifice to bring you back to himself in love, the one who loves you so much that he suffered the death and wrath that separates us from him, well, look to Christ. Learn to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength by learning to love the divinity of Christ. Look lovingly to Christ and so learn to delight in the law of God. In Christ, you see the perfectly righteous relationship between God and humanity. In Christ, you see perfect love, both human and divine. In Christ, you see the most beautiful God and the most beautiful neighbor. In Christ, you learn to love both and so learn to fulfill the two great commandments. Look at Christ and learn to love his humanity as you love yourself and learn to love his divinity with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look at Christ and so learn to delight in the law of God. Look to Christ and grow and flourish and stretch your soul into a rightly restored reality. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. 
We thank you for what you've given to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he was broken so that we could be rightly brought back to you, to our neighbor, and all of the good gifts of creation which you have given to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.